Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Today, we are almost going to wrap up. We have one more message left in this series, but if you're just joining us, um, fairly new to the church, my name is Dave, and I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at Harvest. I want to especially welcome those who are relatively new to our church. Uh, it is not an easy thing to be new to a place, and I've been where you are, and it is uncomfortable, and so I hope that today you will have a positive and welcoming experience, and that over time, if God wills it, you will find home among us here. The door is open. Our hearts are open to you. We just hope that you will be able to find your way to a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ and others while you're walking with us. I like that clip, and I opened it because we're, we've been through a series um, in the last two, two and a half months called Life-Changing Conversations. The whole point of this series is to encourage and really nudge us to elevate our standards for human discourse. Because I think there's a lot of chatter today, a lot of talking to each other or at each other, but the level of dialogue is really not as deep as it could go. And so I'm really hoping that we will engage in deeper, more meaningful conversations with others. But I don't want to hide the fact that one of the things I hope will happen in the course of life-changing conversations is that the, the Savior who you know, if you are a follower of Jesus, one of the most important people in your life is Jesus Christ. And it's my hope that in the course of having deep conversations, at some point, you will actually talk about Jesus. Now, I love that clip because Danny DeVito is making a very valid point. The minute you start to manipulate a conversation and steer it towards a certain conclusion, it stops feeling like a real human conversation and starts to feel like a very manipulative sales pitch. And I think that's very disingenuous and dishonest. I think we as Christians need to learn better how to just have an, an actual a dialogue with somebody, to really listen to what they feel, what they believe, even if it's very different from what we believe. But I also know this. Nobody is going to meet Jesus by listening to me talk about my experience of becoming a husband or a father or an employee or a boss. We can have very deep conversations about all kinds of things, but at the end of the day, there is only one real hope for the human race, and that is to find a true and genuine relationship with Jesus Christ the Savior. So that I, I truly believe that when all things are said and done, the most life-changing conversation we can have is about Jesus Christ, the Savior, the King of Kings. I love what the Apostle Paul, that leader of the early church, one of the great evangelists in the early days of Christianity, said in the letter to the Romans. He said, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? You know, I think since the days that Jesus walked the earth, the primary way that anybody has ever heard about or entered a relationship with Jesus is through the existing human relationships they have. The nature of this faith 
is not one where primarily we are seeing people meet Jesus through crusades and stadiums or through flyers or through books, but it is through a life-on-life testimony of this Savior whom I have met, a real encounter with a real God who has changed my life forever. I was encouraged to learn recently, the Louis, how many of you have heard of Luis Palau? So he's an evangelist who is active all over the world. Um, his evangelistic organization did some research not too long ago, and they discovered that 75% of all who come to Christ do so through a relationship with a friend, relative, or coworker. The Institute of American Church Growth um, back in 2009, also did some research. They surveyed around 14,000 Christians, and in their research, they discovered even higher numbers. Almost 90% of the 14,000 Christians they surveyed said that they came to Christ through, and I quote, a relationship with a friend, I'm sorry, through a friend or relative who invested in a relationship with them. I think that's encouraging to learn because I really believe that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that relationship you have with Jesus is the hottest tip you have. It's the greatest treasure that you can give away to somebody. That if I were somehow able to make sure that my children inherited my relationship with Jesus, if I could write it into the will and mandate that they would have it, it would be the greatest treasure I have to give away to anybody else. And until the day I'm convinced that that's actually true, I, will, I guarantee you I will not be very active sharing that gift with anybody. I will keep it to myself because it is found in a comfortable little place on the cupboard of my life. And I won't share and give away that faith until the day I'm convinced it is actually the greatest treasure I have to give away to anyone. I'm encouraged then to learn how many people are finding their way to Jesus because somebody else gave away that precious gift to them. And I I think that is the right way for the Christian faith to spread on the earth. I, I don't think it should ever be reduced to a sales pitch or marketing ploy. I really think that it is the kind of faith that must be at every level an intensely personal and relational faith. And so I want to talk about that point in your relationships with people where inevitably, if you value and treasure Jesus, it would be very strange for you to know someone and engage in deep conversations for any period of time without the most precious and important things in your life coming to light. For example, if you know me for even a few months, we're going to at some point talk about the glorious Apple products that are out there on the market because I think every other company is making garbage. Now, you could argue with me, and you probably may have some very valid points, but what I'm saying is that stuff is very important to me. It's nowhere near as important as Jesus, but it's pretty important. In fact, I was convicted the other day that I don't have a fish on my car, but I have two Apple stickers. So I I really probably should do something about that. Uh, It looks a little skewed. Okay. Idolatry, I don't know. But, but the thing is, if you know me, very shortly after getting to know me, you're going to get a sense of what's really important to me. And you're the same way. If I hang out with you for even a few weeks, I'm going to be able to sniff out very early in our relationship, oh, I get it. This dude loves the bears. This person loves Italian beef sandwiches. 
This person loves classical music. Whatever the case may be, we're going to know about you because you cannot suppress that which bubbles forth from the deepest part of you. You cannot hide what is really important. Nor can you fake it for too long and act like something's important which really is not that important to you. And so I think um, it's going to come out at some point in every deep conversation that you revere, that you treasure your relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's talk about that relationship and that kind of conversation when it comes time to share Jesus with somebody else. The first point I like to make is love is the motive for sharing Jesus in any context under any circumstances. One of my favorite comedians, though he's a little crass, is the late Mitch Hedberg. He's one of those Stephen Wright-style comics where he just says weird, non-sequitur, random statements, but they're hilarious. And one of my favorite jokes that he has is, I love Kit Kats, unless I'm with four or more of my friends. (laughs) And you understand what he's really saying, right? Because Kit Kats are physically structured in a way that they're meant to be shared or at least broken into pieces. And the joke is this. It is not natural for human beings to want to share. If you have children, I don't need to convince you of this, watch children without any intervention or training. They are the most selfish little animals you will ever see. You see a kid with a treasure, a little lollipop, and even their loving father and mother, can I have some... And you, you just search YouTube for the, the phrase, refuses to share. I had a good time watching. I'm not going to show you any of them, but they're hilarious. Even down to the animal kingdom. A mother panda refusing to share her little loaf of bread with her own baby. It is not in our nature to share, but somehow love conquers that resistance to sharing. So that when we genuinely love someone, we find ourselves strangely, perplexingly willing to share what we treasure. Not forcibly, but because we really want to. Because I want to give you something. And in in a way, if you flip that equation around, you can see who you really love by whom you are willing to share gladly of your richest treasure. I mean, that's the way it is. There are some people, if they ask for your last cookie you would give it to him without a single bit of hesitation. And there are others, if they ask for your first cookie out of 100, you're like, well, I was kind of in the mood to eat all 100. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, it's a measure of your, of your true love for someone, how joyfully you are willing to share what is most meaningful to you. And that's why of all the words available for evangelism, I think sharing Jesus, that word sharing, is such a beautiful way of expressing what we're trying to do. I've seen evangelism done in horrific, bad ways, even done to me when I was younger. Do you want to go to hell? I don't know anybody who wants to go to hell, dude. Like, why why are you coming at me with that? Well, if you don't want to go to hell, here's what you got to say. And, you know, there are, we can make fun of it all day long, but there are really wrong ways to try to open up somebody's eyes to the truth of the kingdom of God. But I think one of the most beautiful expressions of sharing is that word. When we share something, I'm offering access to something that is very precious to me. 
I'm saying I have the right to keep it to myself. If I chose to do that, I could, but I'm going to make what is mine ours now. I'm going to share with you what used to be mine alone. In a way, you can say that sharing as an act is friendship or love put into practice. Paul, in his second letter to the church in Corinth, wrote these words. For Christ's love compels us. That word compel really means driven. It's the engine that makes us move. And what he's talking about is in any setting, in any methodology where he is proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus, whether it's done quietly, whether it's done loudly, boldly, or subtly, in every situation where the gospel is going forth, what Paul says is the one compulsion, the one motivation that links all of those things together is the love of Jesus Christ for us and the love of Jesus Christ through us. Because Jesus died for all, and therefore all died, that amazing act of self-sacrifice and love stands as the single great motivation for every time we share the gospel with anybody. So I think what he's trying to say, what I'm trying to say this morning, is what is our motive for sharing Jesus with somebody else? When I was younger, I was encouraged to do it so that I would be a faithful Christian. I felt like it was a call to my duty, and I don't want to erase that completely. I think our culture is losing any sense of duty. And so I really do feel like we should see an increase in that sense of obligation to a greater cause. But really, at the end of the day, when you're trying to share Jesus with someone else, what is your motivation? And what Paul says very clearly is in every circumstance, that motive should be a genuine love for Jesus Christ and for that person you're sharing with. That if you don't really care about them, then you have some other motivation for trying to tell them about your faith. And if love is not the motive, then it begs the question, what is the motive? What are you gaining from this? Why are you driven to give away Jesus to somebody else if the core motivation is not a deep and genuine love for that person? I want you to think about the fact that when Jesus' love is coursing through us, one of the compulsions we have, one of the um, irrepressible drives in us is to tell other people. And you can identify with that compulsion every time you discover a new amazing restaurant. There's a little restaurant on Golf and Higgins, or on Higgins and Roselle, I mean, called Viet House. When I, many of you are laughing because I have introduced you to that place. I ate there and I had an amazing experience and I began to preach the gospel of Viet House. I've gotten on a first-name basis with the owner. He's a buddy of mine. Every now and then, he throws me a sandwich. You know what I'm saying? And I remember one time after service on Sunday, I went there, and like 17 people in the restaurant were from Harvest. And the thing is, I get nothing out of that arrangement, but somehow when you discover something that deeply satisfies, no one has to tell you to share it with people. You just have this inner compulsion that when you find something of value, you're driven to give it away to those you love. 
the same way if you find a great band or discover a new brand of coffee or whatever. Why, that's why half the reason Facebook exists is so we can tell everyone we know about the cool stuff we're finding, isn't it? And so if you find that you never feel a compulsion to share about Jesus with people, one of the things to examine deeply is where is the love in your life? Where is the love? Let me give you a second and final observation about this, I, this point in the conversation when we start talking about Jesus. And that is that we really have no other message than Jesus himself. The gospel, our message is not a message of self-improvement, of conquering your demons, of becoming more moral and upstanding. It's not a message of becoming a better mom or dad or brother or sister. The only real message we have is built around the person of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done and what he desires for the human race and for himself and his great kingdom. I'm indebted to a theologian, a professor named Scott McKnight, and to Marcus for recommending a book called The King Jesus Gospel. That book is still messing me up. I'm still wrestling with it. It's a great book. Thank you, Marcus. And I'm, it's really expanded my understanding of what the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, really is meant to be. I agree with Dr. McKnight that the gospel in its essence is captured in 1 Corinthians 15. And I want you to see the first five verses of that text. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Now, those are the first five verses. There's more to the gospel that comes later in that chapter. We'll address it momentarily. But let's start there. When it comes time in a relationship for the conversation to turn to Jesus, I think the temptation so often is to start with my personal story of meeting Jesus. And there's power in that story. It's an essential part of the whole experience of sharing Jesus with someone. But I think a wiser place to start than my story of Jesus is the story of Jesus himself. I think it's important to begin with the foundational question of who exactly is Jesus Christ? To establish that he was, in fact, a historical figure. When we talk about Jesus, it's not the way we talk about Santa Claus or unicorns. He's not a mythological being or a symbolic idea. He was an actual person who lived on the earth. He occupied space. He had relatives. He was God who came down to be among us in the form of a human being, and he really occupied a place in human history. And it can be argued that he is easily the most widely influential human being who has ever lived because he was God and man at the same time. 
And for anybody you're talking to about Jesus who is living in the United States, it is nearly impossible for them to have never heard of Jesus Christ. In fact, I, th- I, don't, I don't recall meeting anyone who was older than four years old in the United States in my 47 years of life who had no clue, like, Jesus Christ, who? I have no idea who you're talking about. You go to Europe, you'll find lots of people who have never heard of Jesus Christ. But in the United States, almost everybody has heard of him and probably has some pre-existing opinion about who he is. He made some outrageous and exclusive claims. He divided humanity into two camps, those who knew him and those who did not. And so a great place to start is first to ask somebody, what is your take on Jesus Christ? Who do you believe him to be? Do you even believe that he existed, or to you, is he something like St. Nick? Some figure handed down to us culturally who never walked the earth. And so I think a very good place to start that conversation is simply this, who is Jesus? And you don't have to be a theologian to have that conversation. Start with what you know of him and begin there, because I think too often we talk about Jesus as though he's just an idea and not a real being. But I think as we develop that idea of who Jesus is, we have to then transition into who Jesus is to us. Because he's not just some historical figure. He's a historical figure who is very much alive and is part of my life today. I met him and he met me at some distinct point in my life. And my story was forever marked by that encounter. And so we tell the story. When I share my story of meeting Jesus, I share the story of of how one day, out of the blue, I was convinced of the darkness that was inside of me. I was pierced by the realization that I'm not the good person I imagined myself to be, but that I have sin in my heart that I used to be in denial of. And I saw it one day so clearly, and I was broken by it. I was overwhelmed by the burden of just how dark I was and how dark I could get, and I didn't know where to go with that. And then the preacher told me about what Jesus had done. And I stopped and I laid aside all my efforts to try to clean myself. I put all those efforts aside and said, I'm never going to succeed at making myself righteous. I can't become a good person through all my effort. And so I laid aside those efforts and I trusted him completely for the forgiveness of my sins. I accepted his free offer of a pardon, not to be earned, but simply to be received as a gift. No strings attached except one, that I would give up the old life I had and the stubborn desire to be my own king and master, and that I would accept his rule over my life because of the great gift that he had offered to me. I accepted that I couldn't add anything to my righteousness, but that what he did for me in dying and being buried in and rising from his grave was enough for me. That's the story of how I came to know Jesus Christ. And each time I retell that story or think about that day in the summer of 1984 when these events occurred, something gets stirred up inside of me because it's the most important story of my life. It's been our custom lately that when we have Valentine's Day roll around, we try to do a group dinner, a a group date with the couples in our community group. 
And when we've done it the last several times, it's our tradition now. We just go around the table. Each couple shares the story of how we became us. Right? And it's so much fun listening to the crazy stories. Every marriage is a miracle to me because I'm like, how did the two of you even make it past all that to become a couple? Almost every couple goes, yeah, there was no way at the beginning. I was like, ew. And then persistence won the day, and uh, I, I got desperate, and, you know, so there it is. And so you hear all these stories, and it's really entertaining listening to everybody's stories. And every time I retell the story of me and Jeannie, I got to confess, I'm 22 years old again. And I'm freshly captured by that sense of blessing and of being lucky. I remember how it felt to be 22 and have Jeannie take an interest in me. And that feeling of like, is, am I getting punked? How's this girl not taken yet? I was waiting for her to be like, yeah, I'm already married, sucker, fool you, you know. And it turned out she was available. And every time I tell the story, I relive our story. And it has this ability to rekindle my sense of gratitude for the woman that's in my life. And I think each time we retell the story of how we met Jesus, it has that same effect. Because I get so used to knowing Jesus, I forget that one day I was living completely apart from him. And the only good thing that ever happened to me is if a girl said hi to me or if I got some unexpected money. And I remember a time in my life when that was actually the best thing that could happen. Oh, I got some money. I think back to those days and I'm like, well, how pathetic was that? That money was the best thing that could happen to my life. Good God. Was I ever that sad? The happiest moment of my life was getting some money. Because since that day, I have learned what real joy feels like. And money and girls cannot even cast a shadow to true joy. And each time I tell the story, I remember what I was like and how Jesus changed my life on the day that he met me. Here's the rest of the story, though. And this is so important. Jesus met me when I was hard to look at. And when I was hard to love. And he opened his arms to me and loved me anyway. And that is the good news of the gospel. But here's also the good news. He did not leave me the way he found me because he was doing something on this earth. And I was caught up in it. That Jesus did not just become a part of my story. But I became a part of Jesus' story. The latter part of 1 Corinthians 15 speaks about not just the Jesus who came to die on our behalf and give us a hope of redemption. But he talked about the way in which Jesus is carrying out that redemption because the primary goal of the gospel is not simply to get us to heaven, but for Jesus to take his rightful place as king of kings overseeing a great kingdom in which he is exalted and God is glorified and people are caught up in that and their lives are changing. That the gospel is not primarily about a shift in my destiny, but am I being included in something amazing which God is already doing that is cosmic and universal and global in its scope. Another way of saying that is, Jesus Christ is the subject and the object and the, the end and the beginning of the gospel. 
that it is primarily a story of him. And it is our great privilege by his mercy to have found a part in that amazing story. That is not to minimize the amazing effect it has on us or how real it is in our lives. But here's the thing. When Jesus met us, because he was already doing a great work of transforming and redeeming a broken world, he did not leave us the way he found us. But from the day I met him, he's been changing me little by little. I've shared with you just how much I loved profanity before I became a Christian. It was such a part of my life. I was a profanity artist. And little by little, Jesus did not just take the cussing out of my mouth. He took it out of my heart. It's not all gone. If you cut me off on the road or you act like a jerk, a little cuss will just... My daughter taught me a hilarious substitute for physical cussing yesterday. I won't show it to you, but it's a way of uh, telling someone they're number one, if you know what I mean, without actually doing it. But, you know, it's in our hearts. We still have a little of that, but he's been really shaving away that prickly part of me. And I see it not just there, but I used to love money. You just have no idea. I used to love me some money. Ask my wife today what I think about money. I, I don't even think about it. I don't even know how much we have. I honestly God have no idea how much debt we have, how much wealth. Money is no longer a part of my psychology. I am blissfully ignorant of my financial status. That's why my wife has so much gray hair. Is because I have no concern for money, even when I should. I'm not saying that to boast. I'm amazed I could say those words in public without lying. Because Jesus is changing me. But you know how he's changing me? That's what these words here are about. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has what? Destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. I think the most overlooked aspect of the gospel in the United States is the lordship and kingship of Jesus Christ. We love to regard Jesus as the savior who gets us out of hell. But that's where the relationship with Jesus gets frozen in time for so many Christians. Thanks for the eternity. Now, if you could just scoot to the left, I got a life to live. And I'd appreciate if you don't mess too much with my junk. I, I'm, I don't mean to sound sarcastic or belittling of that, but to be truthful, I think that's the spirit of North American Christianity. Thanks for the eternal hope. Now move out of the way so I can get back to what I was doing before we met. I think that's the reason so many Christians in America rarely experience true transformation. Because the way Jesus changes us is not just through the passage of time and the hearing of sermons. If that's all it took, every one of us would be champion Christians and moral examples to the watching world. But the truth is that the primary way Jesus changes us is through his kingship. 
It's been my experience that those places in my life where I've experienced the most genuine change are the places where I have come over time by His grace to recognize His authority over my life. To understand that when I met Him, I didn't just add Him to my collection of treasures, but that I became a part of His overall quest to establish a kingdom in this world to be exalted above all other authorities and powers, to be the central figure of the universe. And it is in those places where I've most acknowledged his authority that I've experienced the greatest actual transformation. There are still places in my life where I am holding out, and I know it. I won't share those with you, because I still need to be able to preach here from time to time. But I will simply admit to you that I am not done being shaped in Christ. There are parts of my life that I stubbornly want to hide from his authority because I'm still not done liking those things yet. I'm not yet convinced I want those things to change. But there are areas of my life where I can say with an honest heart that Jesus is my king. And in those areas... I have seen a miraculous transformation in me. Our personal testimony of transformation is a very powerful way for people to understand and meet Jesus Christ. But our personal testimony of life change should never be separated from the kingship of Jesus Christ. Because you did not become a different person by trying harder or getting more educated. That never happens. It is when you grow through obedience and surrender and submission to his rule that finally your stubborn heart can come in alignment with him and his character and his plan for humanity. Only then will he not just change your behavior or your language, but the things that you truly value and love. The inside will catch up to the outside as you submit yourself to his rule. I think I still have a long way to go into understanding fully the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I can say to you this much clearly that the story of the gospel is a story of a kingdom that is moving forward. And over that kingdom is a great king. And it is only when I bend my knees before this king and recognize his right to rule over me that I will begin to experience fully what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to be saved. And so that is our message to others. That Jesus lives, that he did walk the earth, and he lives today, and he lives in me, and the means by which he is making me new and different and better is through his reign as king. And that my life change is only a part of that great story. That God of the universe cares desperately about his creation. That he knows you by name. That his plan includes you. That he's taken notice of you. 
So as I close, I want to charge you to avoid two common errors in our conversations with people about Jesus. The first error is simply this, to impersonally treat it like a sales pitch. Listen to Danny DeVito. Be a human being and not a marketing rep. Avoid the error of trying to befriend people only so that you can get to the close of the deal. I think that's very dishonest and insincere. And most people could smell that coming a mile away. When you talk to people, really talk to people. But avoid the second error, which is to talk to people on and on, just never about Jesus Christ. It is Jesus through whom people find their way to salvation and to a place in God's kingdom. So let me, as my practice has been, give you a couple life applications, and then I'll stop. Ah, so annoying. I have a typo. You just have no idea how much things like that bother me. All right, well, let me just get over that. Um, would you? Thank you. God bless you, brother. All right. So the first is simply this. Rehearse your story. And I don't mean like a sales pitch, like a pickup line. You know, I don't want you to sit in front of a mirror and be like, oh, you must have, your dad must have been an angel because, you know, <laughs> you must be tired because you've been running around my mind all day. I don't want you to rehearse your story like you're rehearsing a pitch. What I mean by that is simply sit down and articulate your story. When I sat down to tell the story of me and Jeannie, what I realized is I was picking up things I'd forgotten along the way. There was a chronology, an order of events that I had kind of forgotten because I honestly can't remember my life before her. I feel like I was born with her, you know. I know I lived like 22 years before. Those 22 years didn't count. So as I retell the story, as I actually articulated it, the story became more real to me when I prepared to tell it to somebody else. And I wonder if your story of Jesus is more than just, yeah, I, I, I met him like when I was in high school. That can't be the end of the story. There is more to it. And when you articulate it, when you, by rehearse, I just mean write it down. Speak it out loud, even to yourself. You would be amazed what the telling of your Jesus story will do in your own heart. Do you know your Jesus story? Can you articulate it for someone else to hear? And then the second one, if you're not in the show business industry, you have no idea what a log line is. It's not a lumberjack term. It's a term from Hollywood. A log line is a very short one or two sentence synopsis of a movie that a writer of a screenplay will tell to a studio executive in the hopes of getting them interested. Because when you finally get the attention of a studio exec, you have approximately 30 seconds to either tell them you're wasting their time or you've got something they want. And so writers develop these things called log lines that are simply the whole story reduced to a very, very short treatment. And if it's done its job, if it's got a smart emotional hook, and if it really tells the story in full, it leaves that person, the studio exec, saying, hey, that's interesting, sit down and tell me more. And that's all the writer's waiting to hear. Let me see if you can pass this quiz. I will give you a log line to a well-known movie. Tell me if you can figure out what movie it is. The extraordinary story of a thoroughbred racehorse from his humble beginnings as an underfed workhorse 
to his unlikely rise and triumphant victory over the Triple Crown winner. Seabiscuit, that's right, Seabiscuit. A young man and woman from different social classes fall in love aboard an ill-fated voyage at sea. That's right, Titanic. Okay, yeah. When a Roman general is betrayed and his family murdered by a corrupt prince, he comes to Rome as a gladiator to seek his revenge. So obvious. But you know what? I read that log line. I want to watch that movie again. That just sounds awesome. I don't care if I know how it ends. That's a story I want to know more about. And I find that when you reduce a great story to a couple lines, it captures something of the essential element, that part of it that stands out to you as truly meaningful. And, and I remember reading in an article this past week, of course, that's Gladiator, duh, okay? That the reason for doing an exercise like this, like reducing your Jesus story to a sentence or two, they said it's always better when you're talking to someone about something to leave them asking you for more than to, to leave them wishing you had never started talking. <laughs> Some of you are thinking that right now. Oh, when is this going to end? It's always better to give enough that they get to decide if they're actually interested. Nobody wants to be cornered into a 45-minute lecture of a story they don't care about. So I actually tried writing out the logline for my Jesus story. Do you want to hear it? A young man. A young man. (laughs) Raised in a loving home of privilege is finally made whole only after being broken in an unexpected counter with Jesus in the last year of his childhood. That's my Jesus story. I had no reason to want for anything in life. But I didn't know how broken, how empty I was until Jesus came and met me. And suddenly I knew what it was to actually be a person. To actually be whole. What is your Jesus story in a sentence or two? Because as you share it that way, you will begin to see just how precious and valuable he has been to you. And if you don't have a Jesus story, I encourage you to give Jesus a fair hearing. You can have a big problem with the church and with Christianity as it's practiced in North America. But I promise you, if you really look into the person of Jesus Christ, you will be hard-pressed to find anything that repels you. He is beautiful in every way that we can describe beauty. And if you look at him carefully, I trust with all my heart you will grow to love him. He has changed my life forever. I really mean that. And I believe he wants to change your life forever as well. Would you bow with me for prayer? I hope that as you get ready to go home, the lingering thought in your mind is not, I'm going to go home and rent Gladiator. Gladiator. 
but that you would have a moment, an occasion to remember again if you are a follower of Jesus. The story of how you came to know him, how he found you in your life. And if you don't have that relationship with Jesus today and you're in this room, I want you to know that he loves you. And that he's inviting you openly to explore who he is. Never mind all the other trappings of the church and of the people around. He wants to actually know you and for you to know him. And I want to invite you to take that invitation starting today. And begin giving Jesus a real investigation, an open heart. I think you're going to discover one day you also are going to have a Jesus story. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you are hard-pressed to think of the last time you felt excited to tell the story. Can I offer you a challenge? That perhaps the place to look is that whether or not you have actively acknowledged the kingship of Jesus Christ. Because it is on our knees at his feet that we really begin to grow and to change. It's where we fall in love with him all over again. So I'm going to invite you just to join me. Let's pray for just a few minutes wherever you are. Talk to God. Listen to him. And then I'll come up and close this in prayer. And we'll have some songs. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.